how cold is it in Minneapolis right now? It's warm. It must be like 40 out. <laughs> <laughs> you, you know you couldn't get through an interview without someone taking a shot at the weather. Right? Exactly. I know. Yeah. Exactly. I'm sorry to be that cliche, but uh, no. I have to justify the cost of living here in some way, so I hope you understand. <laughs> Welcome to the year-end holiday spectacular edition of Gimme Shelter, the California Housing Crisis podcast. I'm Matt Levin, data and housing journalist with Cal Matters. I'm Liam Dillon with the Los Angeles Times. And uh, how festive are you feeling this fortnight? I'm feeling great. Uh, got my eggnog going, ready mm-hmm. for some champagne coming soon, and uh, it's, it's, a, it's a good time. So we'll be tying a ribbon on 2018, uh, kind of summarizing the year in housing policy, what was done, what was not done. And we have a great guest uh, this week to talk about a, a different topic. Uh, you may be aware, uh, you've heard a lot in the news about the city of Minneapolis and Minnesota uh, just passed a new plan uh, the, for the first city in the country to have eliminated uh, single-family zoning. That's right. And we'll be talking to the uh, head of the Minneapolis City Council. Yeah, Lisa Bender, uh, who was even uh, more valuable of a perspective uh, because she spent um, uh, many years in California, in the Bay Area. That's right. Worked uh, for the city of San Francisco for a while and also got her, her master's degree from Berkeley. Our first order of business relates to the most popular segment in all of California housing podcastery. It is the avocado of the... Yeah. Did you hear that? Get that? Catch that pregnant pause there. I, I'm gonna, f- I'm gonna try to get some Academy Awards music <laughs> to to fill in there. So thank you to everyone who voted for what they thought was the most absurd, comical, whimsical, slightly sad but funny story of California's housing crisis in 2018. It was a narrow. It was a a battle between basically two stories, but one narrowly edged the other in the end, and that was. may be aware of the city of Beverly Hills because there was a bit of a bunch of TV shows about it, for instance. Mm-hmm. Um, but you may not also be aware that Beverly Hills is an affordable housing champion, at least according to the state. Mecca, I believe, in your words from an earlier podcast. Indeed. So uh, Beverly Hills um, are avocado of the fortnight for meeting its state housing Our avocado production. of the year. Oh, man. God. Take, roll this back, you know. <laughs> <laughs> our avocado Beverly Hills, our avocado of the year for meeting its state low-income housing goals. Yes. Meaning that the state said, listen, Beverly Hills, here's the amount of housing you need to produce to ensure that uh, low-income folks can live in your community. And Beverly Hills, you did it, my friend. Beverly Hills met and exceeded it. And exceeded it. And so what is the avocado part of this avocado of the year? Is their low-income housing goal over an eight-year period was the for the production of three. Three units. Three units. Three units. And congrats, <laughs> Beverly Hills, <laughs> A, for meeting your low-income housing goal, and B, for being named the Avocado of the Year. Congratulations. We reached out 
we tried to get somebody from Beverly Hills. We didn't give them a ton of notice, to be honest, because the vote came in yesterday. So we, we reached out uh, via email to uh, John Mirasich. She's a city councilman in Beverly Hills. Uh, was un- unfortunately uh, unavailable to do an interview, but he did send an, a, a, a pretty substantial email response when we asked about this question. And he said, um, affordable housing requirements, and I'm, I'm, I'm quoting, I'm paraphrasing a little bit, but affordable housing requirements, he wrote in the email, as you know, are based on past growth, and Beverly Hills has had a fairly stable population for over half a century, which means there has not been a lot of new housing built at any price point. Uh, and so, you know, he's, really, it's easy to, to pay attention to the negative stereotypes of Beverly Hills, but he did note that there are a significant number of renters in Beverly Hills, and that population has remained steady. And so, uh, quote, um, uh, you know, one should forget the cheap shots directed at Beverly Hills and instead focus on what needs to be done to improve affordable housing in Beverly Hills and across the state. There you go. So thanks, John. Yes. And thank you to everyone who voted. We got a pretty good response. I was Absolutely. really pleased with the, yes. with the numbers yeah. that came in. Yeah. Um, and thank you for all of you that submitted your own avocados of the year. Um, we, we took a look. There was some good stuff in there, too. So, so we have a trophy. Uh, you can check it out on Twitter. It's a, it's a trophy with a little avocado in the middle. And maybe we can, uh, next time we see John, who is a, 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 a sometimes appears at um, uh, state legislative hearings, we can provide a copy of it for him. I don't. What do you think the budget is for this show, Liam? I think we, we can, printer paper, I think we can do. Yes, yeah. that's true. Or, you know, if somebody has a 3D printer, Ooh. you know, the, the model is out there on Twitter. Okay, so that concludes our avocado of the year, a fitting avocado of the year. I, I I like that choice. It is a good choice. Yes. Yeah. Let's now sum up 2018 in California housing policy in one word: interregnum. Mm. Okay. <laughs> and uh, and and why why that word? So okay, so that was a little glib, uh, but. Um, uh, so 2017 was sort of a really uh, important year with respect to politics surrounding housing housing, and that you had sort of a marshalling of resources in the legislature to deal with um, housing issues in a way that had not been done in, in recent memory with a number of legislation being passed. However, um, you know, it was said at the time um, and something that I think cannot be emphasized enough that what was passed did not really go super far in addressing um, the state's uh, uh, housing problems in a, in a really meaningful and su- substantial way. And so there was a promise to do more. Uh, 2018, I though, I think got us more into the idea phase than it did in actual anything practically happening. There was obviously a major ballot measure on expanding rent control, a $100 million plus campaign that failed. There was major legislation um, to um, uh, increase um, uh, housing density around transit stops that also failed. Uh, And there was a, you know, a gubernatorial election that sort of ushering in um, a a new approach, uh, someone who has promised Gavin Newsom, uh, who's incoming governor, promised to uh, address housing issues in a much more comprehensive way than the current administration under Jerry Brown has. And so that election was this year, uh, but it's not taking shape. And this new, new, these new things are not going to be in place until uh, 2019. Yeah, 2018 will be remembered as a year where uh, things could have happened but did not. I don't have anything else to add on. I mean, that's that that's about it. Uh, so um, the next time we're, we'll be here, we'll, Newsom will actually be in, in in inaugurated in office. And so, what sort of thoughts do you have about uh, the Brown administration and his approach to to housing? 
the Brown administration has been successful on a lot of fronts in the things they wanted to achieve, right? He has done a lot of ambitious things when it comes to climate change, when it comes to uh, at least getting the, the ball rolling on some of the major infrastructure projects in terms of balancing the budget. Right. I think if you had to point out a stain on Governor Brown's legacy, uh, what comes to mind is homelessness and housing. If you look at what's happened to housing prices under his tenure, it's not good. The well, state the state has become significantly more unaffordable. There wasn't significant state action until 2017. When he first came into office, it was a very, very different story in housing than it is now. Um, but he has never placed this at the top of his uh, legislative agenda. It's never been something that he has you know, used the quote-unquote bully pulpit for. So I think it's a fair criticism of uh, what in many other ways would be characterized as a fairly successful uh, administration. Yeah. And, and to your point about, um, you know, this going kind of beyond beyond our sort of myopia on this issue, um, you know, you read the the NPR National did a exit interview with him and they came back twice to the issue of uh, rising housing costs as being something that whether he had any regrets. That's right. Or, or, or not about it. And at the end of the day, he you know, he sort of dodged the question. He said, well, I did all I could. You know, this is really a problem of capitalism or something to that effect, yes. um, which, OK, but, you know, that I think is a, 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 a an avoidance of the fact that, as you just said, he used his weight to try to deal with a lot of really thorny problems, um, climate change or, you know, uh, difficult problems, climate change being the first one that comes to mind and did not use that weight in the same way on, on housing costs. Exactly. And in in some ways, his hands were tied because of the situation he inherited, right? One of Brown's biggest achievements is we now have a balanced budget, not only a balanced budget, a surplus. Right. How did that happen? Part of the reason that happened is because redevelopment was dissolved. Right. And as a consequence of that, as a consequence of that, you have less affordable housing dollars than you used to. Right. And that money really still um, has not been replaced. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. We already know some of the major storylines and have talked about them ad nauseum on previous podcasts about what to expect next year. So let's just very quickly summarize those. One, you got a new governor who has made building 3.5 million units um, over an eight-year period uh, a cornerstone of his housing plan. Yeah, also seven-year period. Sorry, a seven-year yeah. period, mm -hmm. a cornerstone of his housing plan. Right. Um, he has talked about addressing the state's homelessness problem as one of the first things he wants to tackle. Yeah. We know we'll be talking about Senator Scott Wiener's SB 50, uh, this redux of the very controversial SB 827 from last year, which attempts to allow the construction of apartment buildings um, around public transit. Uh, we will be talking about rent control in one way or another, although probably not as prominently as we did with the ballot measure this year. Um, we'll be talking about redevelopment. What other, real quick, what are the other major things that we we have already said we'd be talking about that we'll be talking about? I think about? you hit everything. Yeah. Perfect. Mm -hmm. Let's now take a look at some of the, the simmering issues or some of the things that we haven't paid as much attention to that we think we will be talking about a little bit more 
in 2019. And what kind of pops to mind for you, Liam? So, so I think we might have mentioned this before, but I think this part does bear worth repeating is that priorities are really, really, really going to be really important for understanding how incoming Governor Newsom uh, is going to handle the housing issue, because it's not just in housing where he's made a bunch of really ambitious promises. Certainly on health care, he's made similarly large ones, early childhood education. And so where he decides to put his legislative weight or administrative weight, um, you can't do everything all at once. You have to pick and choose. And, and what those priorities are going to be, I think, will be essential to understanding, you know, when, I, I believe he will take action. But what that action is going to be and whether it will be th- this coming year or next year, I think that's the sort of thing that we'll, uh, we'll, 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 we'll see very soon. One thing I'm paying attention to um, is we are seeing signs of a slowdown in the single-family home market, uh, mostly in terms of sales volume, right? Yeah. So mm-hmm. we're, we're, people are just buying less and less homes, and you would expect prices to eventually fall um, as, as a result of that. Part of that is rising interest rates. There's a host of other factors involved in there. How does that affect the political debate? here in Sacramento, right? If we are no longer writing stories that say California home prices have reached a level, uh, a, a new record a, high, a new record high, which yeah. we write over and over and over again, right. yeah. if we are instead saying it's dipping yeah, and maybe people are going, uh, I have less equity in my home than uh, I did uh, six months ago. What's yeah. going on? Yeah, That is something that hits home to voters and it's something that will have some ripple effect here in the capital and at the local level too. Yeah, I mean, I it would be hard for me to believe that things, given what we've seen so far, that things would become so so different that it would take the the the. I mean, housing is still going to be unaffordable in 2019. Yes, it's going to be unaffordable in 2020, affordable in 2021. It's tough for me to imagine that being different, right? But uh, to your point, I do think if there's not. Uh, if it's not headline grabbing like it has been in the mm-hmm. past, does that mean that we do see the shift in priorities where, well, yeah, housing's unaffordable, but it looks like um, it's not as bad as it maybe it was, or it's not as an acute problem, and therefore uh, healthcare is a shiny object, or again, early child education is a shiny object, and that's used as an excuse to to focus on something else. Yes, and you do see also a slowdown in the growth of rents as mm-hmm. well. Yeah, um, as you mentioned. It's still going to the, the price of an apartment is still going to be insane in yeah. the Bay Area and Los Angeles and San Diego. That's yeah. not changing. Right. But I do think th- there is something to be said about the political repercussions of um, not just a recession induced slowdown, but just a, a slowdown in the single family home market writ large. What, what else is kind of under the hood for you for 2019? So I think politically something is that we really haven't talked about on, on this podcast, but I think it's an interesting lens through which we can perhaps evaluate or see some of the motivations or, or thought behind what's going to be coming through the legislature in 2019 is what's been going on in the Bay Area over the last 18 months, which really came to a head uh, this month which is there's been this plan developed through regional bodies in the Bay Area to address uh, sort of in 10 ways uh, kind of all aspects of the housing um, uh, challenges that the Bay Area sees and to a lesser, somewhat lesser extent, but similar extent, the rest of the state, right? So this, yeah. this plan is called uh, uh, CASA. Uh, and I don't, I don't know what the acronym. This is another acronym, and I don't remember what it what it stands for. But whatever, Casa, right? Okay. Um, and so it it talks about you know doing things like uh, rent caps, 
right? Uh, it talks about doing things like having just cause eviction. It, it talks about rental assistance, um, but also it talks about things like, uh, you know, increasing density, uh, particularly around, you know, transit stops, um, setting aside over a billion dollars to help build a, a affordable units um, throughout the Bay Area and really regionalizing this process so that rather than city by city, you have a more uh, Bay Area approach to addressing uh, some of the housing problems. And so this was just passed by a regional body uh, earlier this month. Um, and, and the passage of it really was, okay, now we get to go to the legislature and have them do all this stuff for us, right? And so um, a lot of the legislation that we're going to see, and in fact have already seen, uh, is ideas that are generated or guided by this CASA process. And so if you're wondering, I think, where all this came coming is coming from, particularly in a unified way, this is the answer. And it, it'll, it'll be interesting to see how lawmakers not from the Bay Area respond to that, right? Because a, a frequently levied criticism of Senator Scott Weiner or Assemblyman David Chu and many of the policy positions that they take and the solutions they propose is, this is a San Francisco problem and a San Francisco solution. Right. I'm from Bakersfield. Right. I'm what does this from... have for, you know, Gardena? Exactly. Right? Yeah. yeah. Or, right. or, you know, yeah. even Los Angeles, exactly. right? It's, yeah. it's a different terrain. Right. And let's not forget, too, um, Gavin Newsom was the mayor of San Francisco, yep. and, and he is also, in some of the language that he said about what he wants to do, echoing the language of this CASA process. And he so he talked in his first press conference after his election. He said his three priorities are producing more housing, um, preserving the low-income housing in particular that exists, and then preventing people from needing low-income housing or falling into homelessness. Those are the, those sort of three Ps are the same things that uh, have been echoed time and again throughout this, uh, throughout this CASA process. That's it for what to look for in 2019. Let's talk about what's going on in Minneapolis and why we should be paying attention to it. So, uh, you know, we try uh, sometimes in the, uh, on the podcast to kind of get um, alternatives that are going on around the country that are addressing housing problems. And we see a really interesting example in Minneapolis recently where the city council there um, just passed a measure that would uh, end single-family zoning in the city, which would allow for duplexes and triplexes um, citywide. In the single, formerly single-family zones, they're going to have these these, which is roughly half the city. They're all you know end that uh, end that process, and so um, and then around transit areas, uh, even larger densities, sort of allowing for more apartment complexes. And so this is the. As uh, people are well aware, there are some cities in the country that don't have zoning at all, but this is sort of the first major city to eliminate um, single-family zoning. So I want to drill in on actually what you just said, which is, right, Houston doesn't have single-family zoning. Right, they don't have any zoning. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Um, So why is this such a big deal? Well, I think for a number of reasons, you know, there's some sort of micro kind of policy reasons. You know, Houston, for instance, does still have parking requirements that, you know, mm-hmm. this plan gets rid of mandatory parking requirements in a lot of areas. and Maybe even the entire city. I, I don't remember that specifically, but it does address parking in, in Minneapolis as well. I think the really intense um, and interesting racial debate that that has happened in Minneapolis, and we get into this in the interview, but they were very clear that the vestiges of single family zoning or single family zoning, the vestiges of that come from a time in the United States where that was done to exclude people of color from certain communities, and they wanted to address that head on and address that by um, ending that uh, ending that uh, ending that practice. So what this does is allow, as you mentioned, duplexes and triplexes around uh, single family homes, right in areas where previously you could only build single family homes. Now you can build a home with up to three units, yes. right? 
how how is that going to help a low income person of color in in any meaningful way immediately? Sure. Uh, and I think you know we talked with, with Lisa Bender about this, but I I think she was pretty clear this is as much a philosophical change or maybe a philosophical change more so than actual practical change to the question that you just mm-hmm. raised. But it, it does I I think to her point directly address this legacy of exclusionary zoning that um that has not only in Minneapolis, but in many other cities across the country where really only whites were allowed uh, to live in certain communities. Compare how, uh, quote-unquote, radical this changes to what Senator Weiner wants to do with SB 50. Uh, I think it's more and less, right? Um, it's more, well, you know, it's more in the sense that this Hedge is— much. Hedge yeah, much? Yeah, well, but this is this is a citywide thing, right? Um, mm-hmm. and, and that is radical, you know? Um, and it, it also addresses the same thing as Senator Weiner is trying to do with respect to um, increasing further uh, uh, allow- allowable heights and uh, density around transit stops, too. So it's not just a single-family yes. question. It does do the same thing that Weiner is trying to do. Yes. Um, but, you know, it's one city in Minneapolis, right, yes. as opposed to the entire state. Yes, that's right. Yes. yes. I mean, I, I, yeah. I think it is it is inherently less ambitious because of because it's just Minneapolis. Yeah. Um, and I think the the overall goals of it are less ambitious than what Wiener wants. Yeah, I, I think yeah. that's fair. Yeah, but uh, there's something that is certainly more ambitious is what's happening, potentially happening in Oregon. In Oregon, that's right. So, yeah. so tell us what's happening in Oregon. Yeah, so there's, um, I believe it's the the leader in one of the houses of the legislature in in Oregon has introduced uh, legislation that would end single family zoning statewide. Yeah, uh, in, in cities, I think cities that are larger than ten thousand and uh, people and Portland. In many ways, a urban planner's dream come true. Indeed, the 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 city upon a hill for urban planners. Although it's very flat in Portland, <laughs> Portland has one of the highest proportions of single family homes of any major city in the U.S. It, it is a single family home dominated city, and they've been talking about trying to do something about that for a long time. But for for the reasons that these issues stay as they are, Portland is not been able to really make meaningful meaningful changes in that area yeah super interesting yeah. super interesting what's happening in oregon uh-huh. yeah is it fair to say that there is national momentum on changing how cities zone yes yeah i think so too yeah and again it's interesting i think what the situation you know we had um a lot of conversations here in california last year with senator wiener's bill over over rover race and um, gentrification issues, displacement issues, and over climate issues, right? And there was not unanimity um, among groups about whether what he was proposing was good or not, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and so to have the conversation being had so explicitly in Minneapolis, where uh, from what uh, Lisa Bender tells us, there was more unanimity, uh, it seems, um, among groups, um, you know, environmental groups, groups representing low-income tenants, people of color. Uh, in that, I think is interesting um, contrast and, and perhaps a lesson for what we might um, ultimately see here in California. Um, okay. And with that, let's talk with Lisa Bender, head of the Minneapolis City Council. We're here with uh, Minneapolis City Council President Lisa Bender. Lisa, thank you so much for being with us. Thank you for having me. So uh, why don't you tell us what you did? Yeah, so Minneapolis just finished uh, and adopted our Minneapolis 2040 plan, which is our uh, plan for community growth, for land use, transportation, infrastructure investments. 
and a lot more. Um, so that was just passed by the city council on a 12 to 1 vote a couple of weeks ago. And so what does that mean, though, for, you know, are we now allowed, if I lived in Minneapolis and I own some land, uh, could I build three units on that land? Yeah that, was the big, yeah, that was the piece of the plan that got the most conversation and attention was we, through this plan, said anywhere in the city of Minneapolis, you can now have up to three units of housing. So we will no longer have neighborhoods that are exclusively for single-family homes. Everywhere in the city, you'll be able to have... Um, you know, a duplex or a triplex. And so why? why? What's wrong with single-family homes? <laughs> Nothing's wrong with single-family homes, and we will continue to have them as we do today in neighborhoods where duplexes are allowed. But, you know, look, Minneapolis is growing. We are a medium-sized city, you know, smaller size, 420,000 people today. And after decades of population decline, our city is growing again. And that's causing a lot of opportunities, but it's also causing... Um, displacement as housing costs rise. We have a 2% rent, rental vacancy rate. So basically we don't have enough homes for the people who want to live in our city. So that pressure on our housing market is causing rising rents and displacement. So this is one way we are making it easier for folks to have housing options in every neighborhood in our city. So what was the, aside from sort of dealing with, with housing, rising housing prices um, or housing costs, what were some of the other motivations behind um, this, this big zoning change? Yeah, so, you know, one of the key components of our plan is, as with basically everything we're doing in Minneapolis right now, we have some of the worst racial disparities in the country. So Minneapolis is a great city to live in. We have low unemployment, really great health rates overall, but we have really big disparities between white people and people of color in every measure. And so... Our, we use this as one tool, an opportunity to um, work toward elimination of racial, racial disparities in Minneapolis. So that looks, we took a look at housing and how we could open up housing options for folks, and we also um, focused a lot on race equity through economic development tools and other things. And then the big other piece was how can we take local action to fight climate change and reduce greenhouse gas emissions, both through building energy use and through our transportation system. How, how does allowing a duplex to be built next to a single-family home alleviate racial wealth disparities? It, you know, it's only one of many tools, and no one would, I, you know, I wouldn't, and I don't think anyone would suggest that that alone is um, enough. But we did, when we looked at our history of housing policy in Minneapolis, as with many cities across the country, if you look at the parts of town that are zoned exclusively for single families, where single family homes, where we don't have a lot of housing options uh, besides that, they are the same neighborhoods where you find racially restrictive covenants. Um, a local college called Augsburg College did a, uh, a project called the Map- Mapping Prejudice Project, and they found um, racially restrictive covenants that said if you're Jewish or a person of color, you can't live in these neighborhoods. And those are the same neighborhoods where the federal government had redlining policies. So the overlap between those maps of redlining, racially restrictive covenants, our zoning map, and then, by the way, our racial disparities, all of those maps line up together. And so you know, it was one tool that we could use to say we really want to make sure there are affordable housing options in every neighborhood and we want to really um, take this history head on and say that we're not, we don't want to create exclusive neighborhoods anymore in Minneapolis.
So, it, it, interesting to me in reading a lot of the coverage of this is sort of how open the racial conversation has been on, on this issue, um, which is, you know, oftentimes a conversation that, that many people want to avoid. Um, why do you think that debate or that, that discussion or, or that, that being part of this was such a sort of an open part of, uh, of what you folks were, were trying to do or trying to do? We knew we really wanted to make some deep change that would likely become controversial. And so we were really clear from the beginning how we wanted to do community engagement for this plan, which was the most, um, you know, in-depth kind of community engagement we've ever done for this kind of planning or policy document. And then we also set 14 goals that were very far-reaching that talked about eliminating racial disparities and, you know, fighting climate change. And we kept coming back to those really core principles. Number one, we're engaging across our communities in Minneapolis. We're purposefully and authentically engaging cultural communities and communities of color that often get left out of these kinds of planning processes. And we're sticking to these 14 high-level goals, um, which cover things like eliminating racial disparities and fighting climate change and supporting health in every neighborhood. Could you describe to us what the cost of housing is in Minneapolis and then be okay when we laugh a little bit? You know, kind of like when people from the Midwest uh, talk about or when people from California talk about the cold to someone from the Midwest. I know. And then the, the person from the Midwest rolls their eyes. So just be prepared for that type of thing. No, I hear you. Yeah, I mean, I, you know, I'm going to be speaking anecdotally. Sure, yeah. Um, but, so, yeah, in my ward, which is just south of downtown, my ward is 80% renter by population. Okay. Um, so it used to be kind of like the pl- I mean, everyone's lived in my ward. It's where you live when you're, like, in college or graduate school or, um, you know, just um, shacking up for the first time. <laughs> Um, it's, you know, I have a lot of young people in my ward. Okay. So in my, um, in the neighborhoods I represent, um, you can get a one bedroom apartment for maybe like 1400 a month. Oh, okay. Um, That's expensive. Yeah, that is. That's... You can find less than that. Um, but for sure in the new buildings. You know, we were, I asked this question with the intent of making fun of uh, <laughs> how, how inexpensive it was. Yeah, exactly. Uh, compared yeah. to California, which you've lived in, right? Yeah. Uh, but yeah, it turns out that those prices, that's not cheap. That's no. not no, cheap. It's, it's, I mean, it's changing quickly. You know, there are certainly parts of town. We mapped our housing market a few years ago. It's probably changed since then, but I think we have about 10,000 units across the city, maybe 15,000 that are affordable at the, levels that we are building, you know, new affordable housing. So 60% of area median income or 50% of area median income. Um, And we're working really hard to preserve them through a number of tools. But right, rents are going up quickly in Minneapolis. And then home sale prices as well. Um, You know, in in the parts of town where you, when there are are like smaller ramblers that were like post-war construction, um, I think you can probably still find a house for two hundred thousand dollars or less. There you go. There we right. Yeah. That's changing quickly too. And we also have parts of town where people are paying seven hundred thousand dollars mm. for um, you know, a lot with a little house on it and tearing down the house and rebuilding a much bigger home. Yeah. So there's yeah. a broad range. So take us through this is obviously a big change um to the way the city is planned and the way things have worked for a very long time in Minneapolis. Um uh, take us through some of the objections that you 
received and uh, whether these are the sorts of things that you were able to respond to or whether those objections were so fundamentally opposed to what the end result was that you just sort of had to kind of either try to convince or, or move forward. Yeah, I mean, I think it might be worth mentioning just super briefly, like our system of government in Minneapolis, and that is we have a mayor that's elected citywide, and we have 13 council members that are elected each by district. And we have a strong council system of government, um, more or less. Um, So the city council oversees directly our public works department, our planning department, health, most of the departments of the city, and that means all of their contracts that are over a certain amount of money go through our committees. We write policy through our council committees. Um, and so department heads basically report directly to the city council, which is really unique. And it's, it means that we have a lot of control as council members, but it also means that we have to become very good at consensus building. Um, so those of us who've authored big policy changes or, um, you know, kind of do things, adopt the budget, we, have, we really have to be good at negotiation with our colleagues, consensus building. It means that our public process has to be solid enough for council members to feel confident in taking tough votes. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's the context that we're in. And so I think we knew over many years we were really going to have to build a lot of consensus. Our normal vote count has to be 7 out of 13 to pass something. But for this, um, because it's our legal, um, legally binding land use plan. It has to be a vote of nine mm-hmm. um, council members. Um, and so we really relied on this public engagement process to really um, connect people to abstract, you know, concepts that are like often abstract planning concepts and bring them into people's day-to-day lives with questions like, how do you get around our city? And what is it like to find housing or try to stay in your housing? We had all different ways of engaging with people, and I think that really set the stage to tackle some of these bigger questions. I mean, what, did you have visceral opposition to this? Yeah, there was a fierce opposition. Um, there is, you know, typically a lot of concern around new construction of apartment buildings. Um, a lot of our new housing development has actually been in downtown in the, in the recent years, but any time there's a new apartment building outside of downtown, there's been a, you know, you, there's often a big community conversation about that. Um, one of the things that I think is great about this plan is it has something called a development intensity map in it, and it's kind of a bridge between land use and zoning. Um, so that would, it, it really talks in more detail than our land use map about how big we want buildings to be along our transit corridors. And that, that can be controversial. Um, I mean, we're talking about buildings that are between four stories and ten stories in most, most of the corridors in Minneapolis. Um, and then, of course, this issue of um, the single-family neighborhoods became very controversial. And there was huge opposition. There were so- lawn signs put out saying, don't build, bulldoze our neighborhoods and a lot of concern about community character and not, you know, quote, unquote, de- destroying community character. Why did those concerns you just raised in single-family neighborhood from single-family homeowners um, not win the day when they have won the day, they win the day in California, and they've won the day in many other cities across the country uh, for decades? Yeah, I mean, I think the, that our staff, number one, our staff did a really good job of setting up an engagement process that talked to enough different kinds of people that we heard from many, many people who wanted to see more housing options in the city. 
Um, I also think we have a really unique alignment right now in our advocacy community where we have transportation advocates and um, affordable housing advocates and our environmental organizations and folks who work on racial justice all coming together to say that this plan, you know, that it's moving in the right direction. Folks were organizing their bases to call council members to turn out to meetings, to comment on our online map. So there was a real um, grassroots uh, effort to organize people in support of the general direction of this plan. And then we also have a political alignment right now in Minneapolis that is both pro-growth and pro-equity. And I think we've avoided the kind of political um, alliances that can happen in so many other cities where, you know, folks who don't want to see development kind of all coalesce from, they're making arguments that are like environmental arguments and justice arguments and saying, we just want things to stay the way they are. The new development isn't benefiting us. And I think we've come together soon enough in Minneapolis where we were able to, um, you know, to both accept growth and, and accept the reality that we need more housing in order to accommodate the people who are moving into our city, but also put some important measures in place that help focus in race equity in, the, in going into the future. I, I want to talk about the, the scale of this. Duplexes and triplexes is really what we're talking about here. Um, but that's not apartment buildings. I, I'm wondering if you think that the scale of this is is sufficient. The plan does move farther than the last one, for example, in saying that in transit corridors that run through um, lower density neighborhoods, our development intensity map says, no, we really do want four story buildings on transit corridors, even if they're a bit farther from downtown. So it's just giving more specificity to a pattern that we've been building support for for many years. Um, and then I think you're right. I mean, this question about single-family neighborhoods, in some ways it's more of a philosophical one. I mean, I do believe that in the next few decades having this change will provide a lot of housing options for people that will help, you know, the senior whose kids have grown and who doesn't want to leave their neighborhood and give them more choices about what to do with their home. I think it will give more options for parents with young kids who want to decide which school they want to be in. Um, I do think that over time it will have a meaningful impact, but certainly the number of units that will get through this pretty small change in single-family neighborhoods is, you know, not nearly as many as that will be built through, um, you know, the more um, intense uses that are allowed near transit. Interesting. So, but I do think yeah. it's worth having the philosophical argument, you know, to say, look, how do, what is our value around housing? And what is our value as a city about who gets to live where? I think that was an important conversation for us to have openly, and I think we need to keep having it because not everyone's convinced, that's for sure. And I think, um, you know, as you talked about earlier, the focusing the conversation in race um, is, is uncomfortable sometimes for, for folks. And I think we need to do a lot more deep conversations about race in Minneapolis. So uh, you, you may be aware uh, that California is, uh, there's legislation, high-profile legislation here that tries to increase um, or allow for apartment building uh, near transit areas uh, all across the state. I know, um, I've been following that. Yeah, so well, I, maybe this is the first question, then what do you think about how the debate um, has gone here and, and how does that relate to your own experiences in your city? Um, yeah, I mean, I, 
it's interesting because, you know, cities don't like it when the state tells them what to do with their local land use laws. Right. I was stating the obvious, right? But I actually think it's really, I think it's exciting to see um, folks in California and in Oregon, I think, um, pushing that conversation to say, you know, states pay for a lot of infrastructure, um, you know, and how do we want to make sure that is leveraged? And so one way is to make sure that we're creating the housing options near transit that makes sense. Otherwise, we're just building transit, you know, adjacent communities or transit, you know, buildings that are near transit, but folks aren't using it. And there's tons of research that shows um, shows that. So I think it's a really exciting um, movement to see across the country, especially in places that are growing so quickly. So what sort of lessons do you think the California debate now can be informed with, um, given the experience in Minneapolis? Right. I think focusing in these core issues of race and housing access and economic access, you know, to not shy away from those conversations and uh, climate change. I mean, I was so struck at our public meetings how many people came to speak uh, very passionately about climate change. And I'm 40. I, I think, honestly, every, almost every person who is younger than me who spoke at our public hearings spoke really passionately, you know, kind of begging us to take action now and referencing the UN report. So I think there are a lot of there's a lot of support in the community for taking bold action right now, and I think all of us need to embrace it and leverage it and know that it means we have to really go out and seek the folks who may not normally come to public meetings, who may not normally know about you know, public hearings at, at City Hall, um, and make sure that their voices are included. Because, you know, kids who are in their 20s now, they're looking forward 12 years and, and thinking, I'm just going to be starting my career. And you know, really taking seriously the damage that's coming um, if we don't take bold action on climate change. Are you surprised that um, Minneapolis is the first city to to do this and that it was not a California city? I'm not sure. I mean, I think, um, you know, one of the things I love about Minneapolis is that it's the kind of place where you, if you organize people, we have a really accessible government. Um, you can get a lot done in a community like ours. Um, it takes—I mean, it takes effort. It takes work um, to organize people. But I—I'm um, not really surprised. Um, I think it—I mean, it certainly came through intentional work. But um, in some ways, it might be easier <laughs> to, do, to do in a community like ours that's, that's just starting. Um, to hit some of these problems that that cities around the country have had before, we've we've gotten to learn from the experience of other cities. Uh, so, California Environmental Quality Act is it good or bad? Well, I'm glad we don't have that in Minneapolis because we probably would have been enjoined from voting on our plan. I mean, we've had we would have had to do an environmental impact assessment. Yeah. Um, you know, it, my experience was that it was often counter to long-term environmental benefit. Um, and the kinds of policies that, you know, in the long term reduce greenhouse gas emissions and create sustainable development patterns. So um, I'm glad we don't have that problem here. Lisa, is there anything that we missed that you want to make sure that we discuss? You know, the one thing just kind of on that last topic, um, we did tie 
our comprehensive plan to an inclusionary zoning policy. Um, and you know that was that was interesting because the folks who are who really believe in in increasing supply were very skeptical of us adopting a policy that requires affordable units in new market rate housing projects. Um, but we worked to design a policy that was very careful at um, with a goal of of not reducing supply, of not making it harder to build in our city. Um, but yeah, so we, we just adopted an interim policy because we don't have financing available, but I'll tell you the permanent policy will say for every market rate project, probably over 20 units, you'll either have to build 10% at 60% of area median income with no subsidy, or you can choose to do 20% of the units at 50% area median income and and use city financing, um, city funding to close the rent gap. Mm, gotcha. So th- this wouldn't apply, obviously, to the duplexes and triplexes. Right, it would not. Thank you so much, Lisa. How cold is it in Minneapolis right now? It's warm. It must be like 40 out. <laughs> <laughs> you, you know you couldn't get through an interview without someone taking a shot at Ex- the weather. Right? Exactly. I know. Yeah. Exactly. I'm sorry to be that cliche, but uh, no. I have to justify the cost of living here in some way, so I hope you understand. <laughs> Thanks so much. Thank you both. Thanks. Take care. You too. Thank you for listening to Gimme Shelter, the California Housing Crisis Podcast. I am, again, Matt Levin, data and housing journalist with CalMatters. You can find me on Twitter at MLevinReports. Uh, Liam Dillon, LA Times, and my Twitter handle is at Dylan Liam. And in the holiday spirit, we're asking you to give us something. That's how holidays worked in my household. <laughs> you know, people occasionally do ask us, like, what's the best thing that we can do to support your podcast? You can always rate and review us on iTunes. That always helps. But the honestly, the single biggest thing that you can do is probably tweet at the Cal Matters account, at the LA Times account. And tell the account you find value in this podcast and you want to see it continue. Yeah, and uh, we really appreciate all the support that that we uh, have received. Uh, we do our best to answer all of your questions uh, uh, via email. Both me and Matt do that. Uh, and so we really appreciate um, your interest and hope that this is something that we can continue to do for quite some time. Yeah, so thank you again for listening. Happy holidays. And our next podcast will be sometime in the new year, probably shortly after the legislative session starts on January 7th.